Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. We've been talking about and trying to answer this question of do I know uh, where I'll go when I die, which We've, we've determined is probably the most important question a, a person can ask themselves. Um, we all know that life is short and life is fleeting, that it does come to an end at some point. Many of us have buried loved ones and, and, and have watched people we care about pass away. And so it, it's a question that haunts many, many people. Um, but over the last few weeks, I really hope that we have come to answer the question that we all have, that we've drawn the conclusion that for those of us who've put our faith in Jesus Christ, we know where, we, where, where we're going when we die. That when, when we pass away, our soul and our spirit will go to be with the Lord, but that there's also coming a day when our body will meet our soul and spirit in the sky and our bodies will be made whole. Our bodies will be made right. They'll be, they'll be made perfect. And, and, and we will live perfectly in unity with God for all of eternity. And so this is what we've been talking about. And I hope, I hope that we've drawn the right conclusions here. Um, I've heard some really awesome testimonies over the last couple weeks. Uh, people who've, who've come to faith in Jesus Christ and put their faith in him and, and acknowledge that he died for their sins. And um, I've also heard people who've been, been believers for a really long time, but because of lack of knowledge about what the scriptures say, have only just now come to realize what it means to put their faith and hope in the resurrection of Christ, which is also a very awesome thing. Um, now, we've been asking this question, do I know where, where I go when I, when I die? But you don't see it on the screen yet. You will shortly. Um, but uh, the question that we're going to ask today is, how does knowing where I go when I die affect what I do with my life? How, how does knowing where I go when I die affect what I do with my life? So the last two week sermons were called, uh, When We Die, We Will Change. There we go. Uh, but but, but today, uh, today's sermon is called, So Live Victorious Today. Right? So it's all one sentence. I was trying to be clever. I don't know if I confused y'all or what. All right? But, but, but the last three sermons should complete a sentence that says, when we die, we will change, and so we need to live victorious today in light of that truth. So let's pray. Let's pray, and then we're going to get, see, you're already, you're already getting sleepy on me. See, the lighting ain't right in here. We got to get some spotlights bright, just shining in your face, like, like these on me. We need some projected onto you. Um, but, you know, as Sam would say, uh, you know, elbow the person next to you. Uh, don't be too violent, but, but keep them awake. And uh, we'll get into it. We'll see what God's word has to say for us today as we finish out chapter 15. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you that your word is for everyone. Lord, I, I thank you uh, for every person that's here today. There are visitors here um, and they're jumping right into God's word with us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them. Lord, I pray for those that have been here for, for weeks and months and years, uh, that they would hear from you clearly today. Lord, I'm so thank you, thankful for uh, a sign ministry that, um, that, that this morning we have women uh, using sign language to communicate the truth of your word. What a precious thing. Um, what a blessing it is to preach the gospel of Christ. And we ask that, Lord, you would have your way uh, with your children today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's start reading chapter 15, verse 50. Follow along with me. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall, we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall, he, uh, shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So let's start here with verse 50. We're going to talk about how sin prohibits us from being in the presence of God. Verse 50 says this, now, uh, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So one of the things that we've been learning over these last few weeks is that only those who put their faith in Christ will reap the benefit of salvation and the benefit of the resurrection. Only those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why is that? And how does that, how does that work? Spiritually speaking, how does that work? Well, we know that God is holy. He's holy and righteous and clean and pure in every regard. And because of his holiness, he cannot allow there to be sin or darkness in his presence. He can't allow it. He's too pure. He's too righteous. It's the very reason why he had to cast the angels that rebelled against, against him out of heaven, out of the heavenly realm. He is holy. And so for this reason, God refuses to bring the unrepentant sinner into his eternal home. He refuses it. This is why we are not universalists. God has given us all a free will. And he's presented us all with the evidence of his holiness, his righteousness, and the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And it is only through faith in Christ. See, Christ, Christ is the way. It's a narrow way, right? It's a narrow way, universalists, right? But he is the way. And it's by our faith in Christ that we make our way to God. And so he can't have sin in his presence. Listen to, what, listen to what Psalm 5 says. Verse 4 says, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. 2 Corinthians 6.15 says this, And what concord or what unity hath Christ with Belial? Now, Belial is a name that, that God often gives to Satan, to, to Lucifer. Um, it's it's, a, it's a, a false idol that embodies this concept of Satan himself. So what concord hath Christ with Belial? Well, we know none. What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? In other words, the idea is this, that Christ can't coexist with wickedness. God is not going to make space in his eternal home for those who are still yet blotted with their sin. He won't do it. He refuses to do it. In fact, it's the very reason he sent Christ to begin with. That is the reason. So what this means is that in order for us to come before God in the afterlife, in order for us to inherit a part in his heavenly kingdom, we can't still yet be in our sin. We cannot yet still be in filthy garments. What does it say? It says flesh and blood, that means our carnal things, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So back to our illustration earlier in the chapter, a seed that remains a seed will never be a flower. Right? That seems obvious, doesn't it? A seed that remains a seed will never be a flower. And a sinner that remains in their sin will never see redemption. So what is the answer? What's the answer to our problem? What's the answer to the fact that we, we don't deserve to be in the presence of God? The answer is Christ. Christ is the answer. Because he takes the sin of our flesh and blood and he makes it clean. He makes the carnal man stand right before God. 
He's interceded in order to pardon us from our sin. Hebrews 2.14 says this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. That's us, the, the, the children of Adam and Eve. He also himself likewise took part of the same. In other words, Christ came and put on humanity. That through death he might destroy him, him being Satan, that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them whom, who, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's humanity, right? We're subject to bondage. We are, we are yet under the power of, of, of Satan. That is until Christ came. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Christ came as a man. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That's our Christ. That's how much he loves us. When you stood guilty before a holy and righteous God, Jesus Christ came as a man and interceded to take the judgment that you deserved, to take it on himself and die a death that we should have died. And he fixed the problem. He fixed the problem of sin. Here's our key point. Our heavenly inheritance, all the blessings and every goodness that comes with being with Christ forever, all of those blessings of the kingdom, all of those things are contingent for you, contingent on the pardoning work of Christ. You needed to be pardoned from your sin. You were held captive. You were held, the Bible is very clear. You were held ransom by Satan. And the only one that could pay the price of that ransom was Jesus Christ, the perfect one. He laid down his life that you might be set free. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I love, I love the word reconciliation. What, what the word reconciliation essentially means is that there was division and he bridged the, ca- the gap in order to create unity. He reconciled us back to himself. He made unity where there couldn't be any. We couldn't bridge that gap. Only Christ could. Romans 5.2 says this, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's by faith. Grace was extended to us and by faith we received it. So what was deemed corruptible and unholy and unworthy will be made incorruptible by the grace of Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's a big deal. Like what we, like what we, you know, one of the things I was telling Eva this, the one of the things I need to encourage you guys more often to do, you know, I know I, what I hear sometimes, I hear some of this, like when you like something, I hear there's like a handful of y'all doing this. Can I just, can I just for a moment just say, I'd really like it <laughs> if the next generation of believers at Midtown Baptist Temple brought back the Amen. I mean, the saints of old, you know, it's scriptural. The amen is scriptural. But, but, but I want to say this. Like, I, I, like I appreciate I, I, whatever you want to do. Applaud, snap, whatever you want to do. I appreciate all that. That's great. But when the word of God hits you, it deserves an amen. Amen. So let's, you know, and it's, it's a little rainy out. But uh, maybe a little amening will keep us engaged. Jesus Christ saved you from death. And he made what was corruptible, he, he made it incorruptible. Now the way God does this, the way, the way God is going to make your bodies incorruptible is absolutely phenomenal. 
The way he is going to do the, his plan is mind-boggling. And Paul's going to teach us exactly how he's going to take that corruptible body and make it right. He's going to show us how he does that. So Paul presents to the church in Corinth a mystery, meaning this doctrine was, was once a hidden concept, only to be revealed by the apostle to the believers in the first century, and we, and we get to study it in Scripture. Amen. Right? It's not a mystery anymore. He's giving a unique glimpse at the mystery of the rapture of the church. And so let's talk about a mystery revealed. Verse 51 says this. Behold, I show, I show you a mystery. Paul's pretty plain with his language. He makes it real clear. I'm about to show you a mystery. It was once hidden, is no longer hidden. This is what he says. We shall not all sleep. And we've talked about this before, that the, that the word sleep is a synonym with death. And we, and we like to use this word because we recognize that it is just sleep. That our body is, is, is really is only going into a state of sleep at the time of death because our soul and our spirit carries on. Right? It lives eternally. And so our bodies, they, they go into a state of sleep. Now, it says we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So what we have here is a description of how the resurrection of the believer is going to go down. This is often called the rapture. But the Bible, but the Bible explains it in, t- in terms of a harvesting. A harvesting of Christ's church. It's a mystery revealed. And so what is this saying? First, okay, if you're taking notes, which I also highlight, I mean, since I'm encouraging things today, I encourage amening. And I encourage note-taking. You know, I, I don't do the whole handout thing. That's for two reasons. One, I don't have time for it. Okay, I don't have time to sit around and make handouts for you. Okay, the, uh, Abigail, hold your, you guys hold your notebooks up. Bethany, put them up. See this? Invest. Invest in one. Right? Put your notes in a book. Write it down, write it down however you want. Just put it down. What is God showing you? Put it down on paper and then keep it. Keep it. Because you know what? Uh, God, God might tell you, hey, look, go back to those notes. You need those notes again. Okay? So, so what is this saying? What is this mystery saying? Well, the first thing is this. Not everyone's actually, actually going to die. Not every person. When, when Christ comes to redeem bodies and make things right, not every person is actually going to die. It says we shall not all sleep. Okay, what does that mean? It means that when Christ returns to claim what belongs to him, there'll still be people walking around. Not everyone is going to see death. Right? There'll be people that are living when Christ returns. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is this, regardless of whether or not you experience or taste death, every believer will be changed. So whether you're alive when Christ returns or a person, a saint of old, has passed away and their body is in a grave and decomposed, whether or not they've, they've turned into to dust, you know, dust particles, he's coming back for both and both will be changed. Both will be changed. That's the promise. We shall all be changed. I don't know how that's going to look. I don't know. Like maybe, maybe Jesus has some like Holy Spirit glue. And then all of those little dust particles of the saints of old, are just going to get, you know, paper mache back together. I don't know. I don't know how, but I know this, he's going to do it. And whatever he puts together, it's going to be better than what was put in the grave. It's going to be better. It's going to be changed. We talked about all that. But let's get into the details. How, how does this happen? What will that look like? Well, verse 52 gives us some more insight. It says this, in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So first thing we should know is that when Christ returns and raises us up, it will happen in a moment as fast as the speed of light. And, and those that are lost that are left behind, it'll happen so quick They'll look around and they won't even know what happened, right? We'll be gone like that. 
in the twinkle of an eye. It's beautiful language, right? Faster than the speed of light. And the last trump of the church age will sound. So, so, so real quick, hang with me for a second because we need to understand this. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle Paul experiences a vision, right? right? The book of Revelation is, is a prophetic vision of what's going to unfold in the end times. Okay, what happens when, when Christ returns for his church? What's going to be happening on earth? And then how does that flow or dovetail into eternity future? All right, we, we, we know, we know that the tribulation is intended to, to, for God to use that time frame to redeem Israel back to himself. Okay, Romans 9, 10, and 11 promises us that, that though the, the Israelites have refused their Messiah, the one that they prophesied, they've refused Jesus Christ, one day he is going to call them back to, them, to himself. And the blinders will drop and they'll see him for who he truly is and they will repent. And they, we know that at least a third of the Israelites will come back to Christ. Okay? So, so this is, the, the book of Revelation is the prophetic vision that was given to the Apostle Paul about what's going to happen when, when God goes back to claim his nation. Right? But I think it's super interesting and I don't, I don't, I, 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 God knows exactly what he's doing when he writes his book. That just before, just before the Apostle Paul sees the tribulation and the millennial reign for what it is, just before he gets that vision, what happens? Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. Okay, so like John, John's hanging out, right? John's just hanging out. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden it says this. After this, I looked... And behold, a door was open in heaven. Okay, you got, can you picture that in your mind? A door was hope, opened in the heavens. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. So it's both a voice and a trumpet. And it says this, Come up hither and I will show thee Things which must be hereafter. So before the tribulation can happen before the eyes of the Apostle John, the first thing that has to happen is he has to be raptured. He has to see the door of heaven open. He has to hear a trump. And so in this way, he's experiencing what the believer will experience before the tribulation on earth takes place. So at the beginning of the end of all things, the beginning of the apocalypse will start with a trumpet. And what does that trumpet do? It calls for John to come up. And it calls us up too. That trump will call us up as well. John and Paul, they both agree with one another and reveal to us the mystery of the rapture. Christ will descend from heaven with a trumpet, with a shout of a trumpet, in fact. And all of the dead bodies of every believer for all of human history will immediately take shape and meet their soul and spirit in the sky. The saints of old will be re reunited, not with a corrupted body, okay, not with, a, not with their old and corrupted body, but with an incorruptible body. Their soul and their spirit and their body will be reunited and renewed. And in, the tw in that twinkling moment, in that, in that very moment, right behind them will be every believer that is alive on earth at the time of his coming. They'll be harvested to meet Christ. The entirety of their person being made instantly whole and perfect, ready, ready for the heavenly realm, made incorruptible. I mean, y'all know, y'all get it. Like this flesh, like we've, we've beat this over the head over the last few weeks. This flesh is corruptible, Okay. I mean, even like before I came up today, like I'm over here. I don't know if you guys see me. I get these knots in my shoulder right here. You guys see me doing this? Eric, Eric see me? We're like, I'm like, and before I, you know, I'm a little getting a little nervous before I step up here. But I get these knots in my back, man, right here. It's terrible. And if I don't stay hydrated, especially, it gets worse. And so, man, it'll get real bad. 
you know, my flesh is so corrupt. It's constantly working against me. I mean, have you ever noticed that? Your flesh is always working against you. It's always calling you to things that you shouldn't have. It's always working its way towards death. I mean, some of y'all are in, are in here, you're like, you know, like 22, 23. But listen, scientists have said, they, they, this, this is facts, y'all. By the time you're 27, your body's starting to die. Like it's really, it's really just all down here, hill from there. And you gotta work. You've got the only, the only way to, to, to preserve your life is you gotta exercise, you gotta take care of yourself because you don't wanna die early. All right? Y'all are t- that really got you. <laughs> Some of that messed y'all up. You were like, oh my gosh, wait a second. I'm 26. Next year I start dying. <laughs> no, your body is working its way towards death. Why? Because it's corrupt. And it's good to know. It's good to know. It's refreshing to know that God is going to take that corrupt body and he's going to make it incorruptible. Listen to what Paul says to the saints in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 says this. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them that are asleep. So this is describing exactly what we just, what we just learned in 1 Corinthians. And it confirms, it c- confirms what John experiences in Revelation 4.1. Listen to what it says. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Now what is that shout? It's, it's with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Again, the, the, the same as what Paul and John both previously said. And what happens? Okay, we got a colon there. What happens? And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, one of the really interesting things about this letter to to, to Thessalonica, when, when Paul wrote this, is that the Thessalonians were struggling with this idea of whether or not they were gonna have to go through tribulation and whether or not they'd, they'd miss the rapture, okay? They were afraid. They were, they were uncomforted because they were afraid that they were going to experience tribulation and trial and wrath. And Paul writes to them to, to let them know, listen, y'all, Christ is coming. He's, he's coming for you, in fact. And when he does, he'll preserve you and keep you from the wrath to come. Which is why he says you should comfort yourselves with these words. And it is comforting, isn't it? And like, this is the thing I need you to know, is that, is that the knowledge of the resurrection of your body should, should be comforting. The knowledge of the rapture, that it can happen at any moment, should be a comforting thought. At least for those of you who've put your faith in Jesus Christ. Christ will redeem us, and he'll do it in an orderly fashion. He's given us the exact way in which it's going to go down. Now, why should these words be comforting? Because, because it's a message of hope that we will be resurrected before the time of Jacob's trouble and delivered from the wrath to come. And so all of that to say this, real simple, key point. Christ is, here it comes. Here it comes. There it goes. There it goes. Christ is coming. Christ is coming for us. He's coming for us. He cares for us. He's watching us. He loves us with an unending and unconditional love. And he's going to get us. And he's going to deliver us from this nonsense. I mean, he's going he's to take us out of this cursed and corrupt and vile planet and he'll draw us to himself after all after all that's what a loving savior does 
If if he truly loves us, he has to come for us. He has to, and he will. And he's not just coming, he's coming soon. He's coming soon. When is Christ coming? Today. He's coming today. That's the naivety in the, 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 the Bible prescribes for us. We should assume that he's coming for us today. And so, so what does that mean? It means we should live like it. We should live like he's coming for us today. Listen to what Paul says in, in 2 Thessalonians 2.2. The ye be not, so, not soon shaken in mind. In other words, I mean, do you, have you ever felt shaken in your mind? I mean, I have felt shaken in my mind. My thoughts betray me, right? My heart often betrays me. I feel worried. I feel anxiety. And he says, look, 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 don't be so quick to be shaken in your minds, confused, listen, or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. Why, 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 why? As that the day of Christ is at hand. It's at hand. It's at hand. It's happening today. Any moment, any moment Christ could return for us. First Peter 4, 7 says this, but the end of all things is at hand. I mean, they're warning, they're warning believers in the first century, look, Christ could come at any moment. And so, so why should that philosophical approach be any different for us? Why should we think about it any differently than they did in the first century? I mean, Paul was absolutely convinced that the rapture was going to take place that day. And he lived like it. He functioned like it. Right? I mean, we see that in his testimony. Okay, there's riots in the street. When, it's rain, when it starts raining, people lose it. They're trying to take cover. Or maybe, maybe, the, maybe they're waiting for the rapture. Maybe they know something we don't know. Out there prophesying. I don't know. All right, but, but, but listen, listen. This is really important. That we should think the same way that the Apostle Paul did. And that is that any moment Christ could return for us. And so let's talk about victory over death for a second, can we? Verse 53 says this, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. All right, this is what this tells us. Next key point is this. The resurrection of the dead makes the Christian invincible. It makes the Christian invincible. Now, we feel frail, right? In our flesh, we feel frail, right? We're we're, we're worrisome people. We get hung up on just the stupidest, smallest stuff. And it worries us. And and we're afraid of of what things are going to look like. We're afraid of politics. We look at the news and and we see what's going on with our politicians. And we look at the sociological outlook of of our country. And we say everything's going down the tube. Going to hell in a handbasket. And it is. It absolutely is. Right? But for the believer who knows that Christ is coming for them, what worry should that bring you? Though there be violence in the streets, right? I mean, what is the, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Right? This is that you die. You get in a car accident. Right? I mean, look, um, you know, a, a, a sister, the sister church of ours in Decatur, Decatur Baptist, this last year had a young man who just got married, young man in their young adult ministry. A stray bullet came into he and his wife's apartment and struck him dead. Random violence. But the beauty is that that, that young man is not dead. That's the beauty of the whole thing because that young man is invincible. I mean, he just got, he got promoted. I mean, it's, it's terrible for us that are left here. You know, to, to, to lose people we love, it's terrible for us. And we've got to work through that. We've got to grieve that and we've got to work through it. We have to mourn it properly. But listen to me. 
Christians are invincible. Satan, Satan has nothing on us. The plan didn't work. It failed. It failed. Christ made it right. So what was once mortal is now immortal. What was once powerless is, is now powerful. What was once weak is now strong. What was once destined to die is now destined to live forever. Who can hurt you? What circumstance is too big to overcome? I mean, it suddenly puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? Your job, your family, your finances, all of those things suddenly in perspective. For those who once asked the question, what will happen to me when I die? Because of Christ. Because of Christ, all of that, all of that thinking is put to rest. What was once our greatest enemy is now the object of our mockery. I mean, death was once our greatest enemy, our greatest fear. It brought us the most anxiety. But now it's just the object of our mockery. Verse 54 says this, So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And sin, and sin, and, and the law associated with it is dead to us. It's dead to us. Grave, grave, where is your victory over me? Where is it? Where is it now? All of Satan's boasts, all the boasts of the world, all of the corruption that ever surrounded us, where is that now? It's nowhere to be seen. Now listen, I want, I want to point something out that's critical, and, and this is everything for us today. I think just like the church in Corinth was struggling, you know, I mean, we've been through a lot with Corinth so far, right? We've been through a lot together. We've, we've seen a lot. I mean, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But just like they struggled to have hope in their ministry, and just like they struggled to activate their faith, and just like they struggled to overcome sin, similarly, I think we too struggle to have victory in our lives because we don't properly celebrate the victory we have over death. I think that's the source of a lot of our problems. I think the source of a lot of our anxiety and fear and, and worry about the world and, and a lot of our, our, our struggles in ministry where we grow frustrated, we grow weary, we grow tired. It's difficult. Our frustrations and our relationships and our marriages and the, and, and, the, and the difficulty that comes with all of that, a lot of that exists simply because we fail to celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. We fail to contemplate the joy of the resurrection. We've forgotten that Christ is coming for us today. And so we get caught up. And too many of us are weak and asleep in our faith. And when I say that, asleep in our faith, I mean, it we're I mean that we're dead in our faith. It's as though we're dead. It's as though our body's already in the grave. We live and we walk around like, 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 like we've lost. Like, woe is me. We want sympathy from people. We want a pat on the back. We need affirmation just to survive. I mean, it's like our breath. It's like, oh, I just wish someone would notice me today. I wish someone would just care. And we deceive ourselves because we've forgotten that Jesus Christ is coming for us. As amazing it is, as it is to consider that we will live forever, just, just, just as, as amazing as it, as it is for us to, to gaze out and to think about the future and consider what will be in heaven and how wonderful that'll be, it's important to understand that the resurrection has implications for us now, in this life. And too many of us are weak and asleep in our faith. Romans 13, 11 says this, and that, knowing the time, 
that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation, that is the redemption of our bodies, the salvation of our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and and, and, and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. See, the return of Christ is not just a, good, a, a, a feel-good story. It's the preamble for war. It's, it's our exhortation to live godly because Christ is coming back today. Listen to the Apostle Paul, what he calls, what he calls the church in Corinth to. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and this is where we're going to get, this is, where, this is where I need you to really listen, okay? This is what we need today. Verse 57 says this, but thanks be to God. Amen? which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us the victory. He's, he's placed it before us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, and it's gonna tell us a few things. It's gonna tell us some things we need to know. Because of, because of our victory in Christ, be ye first and foremost steadfast. Be steadfast. What does steadfast mean? It means to be firm and stable. It means to be firm and stable. And too many of us are not living in the reality of our future resurrection. Our eyes are not set on victory. And because of this, we fail to establish a firm foundation. So instead, listen, listen, we live in uncertainty. We are anxious people. I mean, I, I've counseled with some of y'all. You, you, know, you know who you are. We are prone to, to distrust the people in this ministry. We're, we're prone to isolation when things don't go our way. And some of you are so prone to have your feelings hurt. That you, that you put yourself back into the bondage of death and you make yourself effectively asleep. And you, you, you get hung up, just like if someone just doesn't say hi to you today. Suddenly this church doesn't love you anymore. And this whole Jesus thing, it was just, it was just, it's never real to begin with. I mean, that's, that's how far away our eyes are from the resurrection. We are so temporal in our thinking. We are so earthy in our thinking, so carnal in our thinking that the slightest disruption to our flesh is enough for us to just be like, I'm done. When we think this way, the moment that we don't like what we hear or how we feel, many of us will just, will just walk away quitting the very work that God began in us. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, I, I, I look out on this room and I see so many young believers who've just begun growing in their faith. You just started discipleship. It's, 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 it's only the work of God, of setting the foundation, it's only just begun in your life. And it's so exciting Every, every week we have people coming to Christ and signing up for discipleship. But listen to me, at least every month we have people walking away. Because they don't like something that they heard or their feelings get hurt or whatever it might be. But listen to me. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin, he established a salvation work in your life. 
And you will only reject the continuation of that sanctification and that salvation work in your life if you get your eyes off of what he's done. See, people walk away and they reject what God started because they were never determined from the beginning to be steadfast. They never committed to true discipleship. Let me, let me paint a picture for you here, all right? And I think this is pretty powerful. In John chapter 6, Jesus is sharing the mystery of his body and flesh and the fact that he was going to sacrifice his body and flesh. And so he's talking about, I mean, it's crazy. He's, he's painting this, this picture for them of how if they're going to receive him, they need to receive him at the level of, of imbibing his blood and eating his flesh. I mean, it's a hard thing that he shares with them. And he knows it. He does it on purpose. So he presents a hard truth to a large crowd of people who can, these people, listen to me, these are people that consider themselves to be followers of Christ. They consider themselves to be disciples. These are people that have been following Jesus around and listening to his, his stories and, and hanging out with him, and they like Jesus a lot. They like him a lot. Sounds like a lot of us. And so Jesus is, he's talking in verse 53, he says this, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's funny, he's talking about the last day. Right? He's talking about the resurrection of the body. Now many of his disciples, they murmured and they grumbled. And others went with him and asked Jesus to explain what he meant. They wanted an explanation. And he revealed to them the truth about the resurrection and how some of the Jews would receive him and some of them wouldn't. And those that wouldn't would be separate from him. And here's the deal. Those words offended their sensibilities. It offended them. Now listen, we all know that this generation right now may be the most easily offended generation ever to exist, at least in the Western world. You know that to be true. And yet every single month, someone gets offended at the words of God and walks away. So these Jews, it offended their sensibilities. And so Scripture goes on to say in John chapter 6, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. There was no steadfastness in their faith. They were unwilling to go the hard way. They were, they were easy to quit. But then Jesus, you know, he turns to his 12 disciples and this is what, listen to me, this is where the power is. This is what we need to determine today. Verse 67, then said Jesus unto the 12, will ye also go away? I mean, what? I mean, how hard would, would it be to hear Christ say that? But here's the deal. He's asking you that very question even today. He's challenging us in this very same way. Will you also leave me and betray me? Will you walk away just because it seems hard? And the, the response from Simon Peter is the response that we all need to have. He says, Lord, to whom shall I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. I mean, I, I know too much. I've received too much truth. I've seen too many things. I've seen just how good you really are. And I, and I mean, I, I see the resurrection for what it is. And I want to tell you, I don't think I can go anywhere else. Christ, you have the words of eternal life. And I go with you. 
See, steadfastness means to be firmly planted next to Christ and his word, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. Because where else will you go? The passage says, look, we're to be steadfast, but we're also to be unmovable, unmovable. Paul says that a proper view of the resurrection should also produce an unmovable constitution. The word unmovable means exactly that thing, okay? Exactly, it sound, it's the way it sounds, the way it is. It means it's someone who cannot be compelled to shift or change their position. And yet we are often easily moved. The right job comes along, and suddenly we have excuse not to come to church on Sundays or not to go to Bible study. You know, you know, I'm working extra hours. And so, you know, it's pay, it just pays me too. The job pays me too good. I can't imagine doing anything else. And so, yeah, church just has to lose a little bit. And so your, your priorities, they're negotiable. The right guy comes around. You know? The boy you've been looking for, the boy of your dreams, the girl of your dreams comes along. And now suddenly, suddenly, we allow good things to entice us away from the right things. Listen to me. And none of us should be so arrogant to think that we're not susceptible to this. Your flesh is capable of some real jacked up stuff. And your heart is deceitfully wicked, and it will deceive you. And within a 24-hour time frame, you can go from worshiping God to effectively cursing him with your life. Just like that. James 1.6 says this. But let, let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. In other words, he's talking about a person that's praying. A person that prays should be, should be faith, full of faith when they pray. Not wavering. And all you have to do is picture a wave, right? All you have to do is imagine a wave for a second. Doing this. It's back and forth. It's back and forth. It's in and out and in and out. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea. Driven with the wind and tossed. And that's how some of us live. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord Why? Listen to me. This is the truth we need to know because a a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And some of us have this double mind. We're like, you know, church is cool when it's fun. Following God is, is, it's a good time when it's a good time. But when it's hard, when something else comes along that just seems a little better, it's like, it's like we play this shell game with God. And we're in and we're out. And we, lo- and we love Jesus and we're devoted to him one moment. And the next moment we're turned and we're chasing after some beautiful, seductive, and unbecoming of a believer relationship. And we'll give away, we'll give away our bodies the ones that belong to God, the ones that that he's going to make incorruptible, we will give our bodies over to corruption because we we can't even see him. See, the unmovable Christian doesn't doubt what Christ has done. So they don't doubt what Christ will do. I'm gonna say that again because I didn't get any, like I got one amen like right over here. Was that you, Joaquin? Was that you? Okay. Well, I expect, I, expect, I expect to hear you this time. Okay? So be ready. Be ready. Listen, listen to me. The unmovable Christian doesn't doubt what Christ has done in their life. He, they don't doubt it. They know what Christ has done. They're sure. They're certain. And because of that, because of the promise given to us of the resurrection of Christ... They don't doubt what Christ will do. 
You don't, have to be, you don't have to be afraid of tomorrow. You don't have to be afraid of, the, of, of, of things around you, circumstances. You don't have to be afraid because Christ has promised you his resurrection and you are invincible. And you don't have to have it your way because you have everything you need. And that leaves us with this third part. He says, always abounding, always abounding in the work of the Lord. A person who has a proper view of the resurrection abounds in the work of the Lord. John 10.10 says this. I am come, this is Jesus speaking, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. See, Jesus wants us to have a life that abounds. It abounds. In other words, it's, it's a life that's worthwhile. It's worthwhile. It's a life, it's a life that has value. It's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's, listen to me. It's not a promise of ease. There's no, in Christianity, there is no promise of ease. But it is a promise of value. It's a promise of value. He's, he's promised that your life can be worth something. And, and look, I get it. Life is hard. It's difficult. It's hard for all of us. We all grow tired we all grow frustrated. We all grow weary. Look, ministry's hard. Like leaders, listen to me, leaders, young believers. Ministry and following Jesus is hard. It drains your emotions. It drains your resources. Like, like there will be times where you will be tempted to grow weary in your well-doing. I get it. We're weak in our flesh and as long as we're in these bodies, things will be hard for us. But when our eyes are set on the return of Christ and we abide in Christ, we will not only be unmovable, we will not only be steadfast, but we will abound in the work that he's called us to and our lives will be useful to his glory. It says here, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so here's the key point. The resurrection of the dead makes the impossible Christian life possible. It puts, it puts into context all the difficulties, all the things Look, being a Christian means you say no to lots of things that your flesh wants every day. That's hard. Christianity is difficult. It's not easy. Being a Christian means you're going to see a lot of loss. You're going to make months and months and months of investment into another soul. Full of faith, full of hope, making that investment only for them to give you the proverbial middle finger and walk away from Christ completely. And it will be devastating. It will hurt you. And you will be tempted in your flesh to grow weary. But listen to me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow dim in the light of his glory and grace. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you, think, do you believe that he's going to set all things right? Well, then let that inform the way that you act as a Christian today. Let that affect your perspectives and do, do what looks impossible in the power of Christ because he makes it possible. It's of great consequence to know that our Savior has not forgotten us. It gives, a, it gives our lives meaning to know that the victor will return to make all things right. It's of the utmost significance to know that each day we serve and suffer in Christ's name is a day that we bring honor to the one that saved us. I want to invite the worship team up and we'll close in worship but here's the invitation to you today. 
If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there are going to be people that that are standing up here, and they're going to have Bibles in their hand, okay? And that is because they don't have the key to salvation. The Bible does. They can't reconcile you to Christ, but Jesus Christ can. They're ministers of reconciliation, and, and they want to show you how to find Jesus. Okay, but listen, hey, listen. There are many of you in here who already know where you're going when you die. And the greatest danger for you is forgetting. And if you need to repent of your forgetting, then come forward and pray with someone. And talk about it before the Lord. Jesus Christ deserves a steadfast, unmovable, and abounding believer. That's what he deserves. So, so become that. Become that today. Let's get things right before the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we need you. And we pray that this season of worship would be a time where people feel compelled to follow you, that they would come forward if they need to, that they would recognize uh, their need for a Savior, and that they would recognize their need to see their Savior, to see him properly. So help us, help us right now as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.